you would be most rewarded to consider this. Do not be fooled by its commonplace appearance. Like so many things, it is not what is outside, but is what inside that counts. This is no ordinary lamp. It once changed the course of a young man's life. A young man who, like the lamp, was more than what he seemed. A diamond in the rough. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. And for those who might not recognize that quote, that is from the 1992 movie Aladdin. One of the best Disney movies in the last 50 years, in my opinion. And you might be asking yourself, why such a random quote? But before before I get into that, Michael, my good friend, colleague, extraordinaire, how are you tonight? Ah, salam and good evening to you, my dear friend. Please, please come closer. <laughs> okay, we might I, have to. I love it. Part of that. <laughs> I lo- I love that uh, introduction, Josh, and I agree with you. Aladdin, Robin Williams. It's definitely one of the highlights of the nineties. But please link it back to our topic because it's not just us basking in the glow of the amazing talent that was Robin Williams. The yesteryear of Hollywood's greatest and best. No, tonight what we are doing is we are doing a rare cancer snapshot. We talk about many of the common cancers like prostate and breast, but Michael and I thought it would be a great idea to go into the weird and wonderful things that you might see or you've only seen once and talk about the rationale for treatment, the pathophysiology, a little bit of a background. So we're going to be talking about adenoid cystic cancers. Mikey, why don't you start us off? Absolutely, Josh. And I think the best place to start off is what the hell is an adenoid cystic carcinoma? And most people will have no idea. So this is why it's going to be really interesting. (laughs) Absolutely. So an adenoid cystic carcinoma... It's a rare malignancy, otherwise it wouldn't find its way on this little subseries that we've started. It arises from the secretory glands, most commonly the salivary glands. Now, this is separate, it should be said, from salivary gland cancer. As we will see, it's a specific histopathological appearance. So you can have salivary cancer, which is a type of head and neck cancer, and you can have adenoid cystic carcinoma. They're two separate entities. It represents 1% of all head and neck malignancies, so rare. I feel like we're just saying that it's a rare cancer over and over again. And it's 10% of all salivary gland tumours. The most common people who it affects are the elderly, and it is characterised by slow growth and, more devastatingly, perineural invasion. Despite it being a rare cancer, it's the most common tumour of the minor salivary glands and the second most common of the major salivary glands, the most common being squamous cell cancers. Michael, did you say most common tuna or most common tumour? It is the most common salmon (laughs) of the major salivary glands. Thank you for correcting me, Josh. Josh, can you give us a little bit of an indication about what causes this now that our listeners and me know what adenoid cystic carcinoma actually is? Yeah, I'd love to. So there's a lot of scarce data and there's few sort of single centre population-based studies regarding its etiology. We do know that age is an independent predisposing risk factor, so the fifth to sixth decade of life, but 
anecdotally and speaking to some of the specialists that do treat this, they've seen a lot of patients that are younger than that, sort of early 50s and even younger. There's a female predominance, so about 60% are female. And if you look at the cases, four and a half cases per 100,000 individuals. It can originate anywhere from the hard palate, the nasopharynx, the lacrimal glands, the tongue, as well as the auditory canal. So it's not just a cancer of the salivary glands then? Well, no, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, most commonly you get it in the parotid, but it that which is the most common, I guess, salivary gland, but the actual glands, it's just it's not just parotid gland or the other lacrimal glands, it's any secretory really gland that can be affected. And so this is why it becomes really interesting when you look at presentation and management that it's not as simple as just cutting things out. And and to your point of anecdotally, the specialists that you've spoken to encountering this sort of cancer in patients who are younger, I must say the one case of um, adenoid cystic carcinoma that I've actually seen was in a young man in his 30s or 40s. So I guess we have all of these predominances, but because the cancer is so rare, the numbers are going to be small. So it might be You've said 60% are women. That might mean six out of 10. Uh, six out of 10 cases are female. And so it's not a huge predominance. Well, considering the numbers are so small, you have to take that with a grain of salt. When you look at the pathophysiology, I must say we don't always go into this, but it's understudied and it's probably far too complex for a mere Josh to do justice to this section. Michael, on the other hand, and his tour de force is always one to do this. But I think the important things to remember first is deletion on the chromosome P35 36, which they think might be an ACC, adenoid cystic carcinoma specific chromosomal trait. And the second is something called MYB, so M for Mary, YB dysregulation, which they think plays a key role in the pathogenesis and proliferation. So what happens, you get a translocation of your DNA leading to a gene fusion, which is MYB colon NFIB. We'll we'll link some slides to this uh, episode, which will be up on our website as well. So check that out. And that leads to an MYB oncoprotein overexpression and activation, which leads to tumor genesis. Interestingly, common mutation markers that you might see when you do sequencing, such as P53, RAS, PI3 kinase, the first you see quite often in prostate, the latter you see more common in breast cancer, are not generally mutated, which is quite an interesting sidebar. And of course, limits our ability to develop targeted treatments for this sort of cancer, which is the direction in which oncology as a whole is going. Precision medicine, that's very right, Mikey. In terms of the histopathology, I mean, we've talked about what it is, how it arises. To your point, Josh, about the lack of surface mutations or targetable mutations, that actually leads us quite neatly into the histopathology. So pathologists don't see RAS, PIK3 kinase or P53 mutations very commonly with adenoid cystic carcinomas, but what do they see? Interestingly, a little bit of trivia, the original histo pathological term for adenoid cystic carcinoma was a cylindroma, which was based on the histological appearance of cylinders of epithelial or secretory cells. Cells tend to have angulated hyperchromatic nuclei and minimal cytoplasm, which is usually clear or eosinophilic. 
there are uh, a couple of surface markers that have been linked to increased aggressiveness and a poor prognosis. So if you have a ACC and your pathologist mentioned that these surface markers are present, that's generally a bad sign. And these markers include CKIT, the vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, the VEGFR3. And as with most cancers, such as breast cancer, a the, the presence of a high key 67 which as we've spoken about before, is a marker of mitotic replication. Immunohistochemistry testing will usually demonstrate smooth muscle actin, S100, vimentin, as well as the aforementioned MYB and CD117, which is a C-kit surface marker, which help confirm the diagnosis, much like uh, the presence of ERPR is a marker or a potential marker for breast cancer, or uh, CD20 and CK, CK7 and CK20 are markers for GI cancers. These are things that you look for if you're suspecting an ACC. Let's move on to the more interesting stuff for our oncology-driven minds or physician-driven minds. There are long asymptomatic periods for clinical stuff. It can be locally aggressive, and the most common presentation is slow-growing, hard, painless swelling in the head and neck region. Interestingly, Due to the nature of this specific condition, other symptoms that people can get include tingling of the hands or feet or a misdiagnosis of Bell's palsy. Many of the times they're actually misdiagnosed and it takes time where you'll have CTs and MRIs and they don't pick it up. Other things that you can see include Horner syndrome and 40% will progress to metastatic disease. With ACCs, they can see distally when very early in tumor genesis. You mentioned the misdiagnosis of Bell's palsy, but that's um, uh, down to ACC's propensity for perineural invasion, invasion of nervous structures in the brain and early branches of the cranial nerves. Is that right? That is correct. And one of the things that people don't generally do is they don't do a base of skull MRI. You do an MRI brain because you've got Bell's palsy. You do maybe an MRI of the neck, but a base of skull MRI is quite different. And because of that, this is a misdiagnosis because Bell's palsy a lot of the time is a diagnosis of exclusion. You've excluded all the, the bad stuff, but you haven't excluded this because you just haven't seen it. And a base of skull MRI, for those who don't know, is a different program a different setting a different type of mri and a bog standard mri brain in a similar way that a mri of the brain misses the uh, facial bones so it's no good for facial fractures or uh, cancers invading into the actual facial structure similarly it frequently misses the base of skull and so if you have uh, a patient and this is sort of, I guess, just a general tip, with with focal neurological deficits that can be linked to a cranial nerve and a normal MRI brain is unremarkable, always consider imaging of the base of skull because you might find something nasty like this. That's it. And it's good to know. It's good to help treat and all those sorts of things. PET scans, you might be asking, is that something you would do? A lot of the time, people would end up doing this just due to the rarity of the cancer. Now, this cancer, while a lot of the time it does metastasize, the main sites include the lung followed by the bone and the liver. 
and you're probably going to do a pan scan anyway. And due to the rarity, I suspect lots of people will get PET scans, but is it validated? Like most of what we're talking about, that's really difficult in such a rare cancer subtype. And as such, you would not be uh, doing the wrong thing, doing a PET scan to look for a malignancy. It comes back to something that I've noticed certainly more recently, Josh. Even though PET scans are becoming more and more ubiquitous and more and more available, I guess, particularly if you're looking for cancer's association with surrounding structures, which for surgical planning and and diagnosis, if you're worried about invasion of particular structures, PET scans actually aren't that helpful because something that's avid, it's very difficult to see margins. It's why we don't use them uh, as standard in clinical trials in favour of CTs because it's much easier to measure lesions. So... While a PET scan is is reasonable and it'll certainly show you if there's something avid, something metabolically active, if you're really looking at trying to excise this lesion, as we will come to, is is the uh, for ACCs, then then a CT or an MRI will assist our surgical colleagues much gr- much better in the planning. That's right, and the premier person in any localized adenoid cystic carcinoma treatment paradigm is going to be your neighborhood surgeon. The local therapy would include complete resection and negative margins while maintaining the function of the affected organ. I think that's easier said than done when you're involving nerves. And a modified radical neck dissection is reserved for those with clinically positive cervical nodes. Now, despite this and despite inverted commas, good surgical technique, the 5 to 10 year recurrence rates can range from 30 to 75%. Michael, how do we as clinicians and as oncologists, we're probably not going to see someone at this stage of their cancer, how do you reduce localized recurrence? Well, as with everything else on this topic, the actual data that we fall back on for pretty much everything is lacking. Post-operative radiotherapy, much as it is in the head and neck space, is really the standard of care for the prevention of local regional disease relapse. Um, some patients with intermediate or high-grade ACC um, or any grade tumour with positive surgical margins, they might have treatment of 60 grays or more, which is a big, big dose for reference I was speaking to a radiation oncologist and uh, for localised treatment of head and neck squamous cell cancers, uh, going above 50 or above 60 grays is increasingly uncommon. The problem is that patients may develop recurrences in distant site outside the radiation field. And there was a study of pembrolizumab. And on this podcast, we've bigged up pembrolizumab as as one of the, the pillars of modern oncology. It's the thing that we reach for, uh, certainly when you're designing a clinical trial. If you want to design a clinical trial for a new cancer, throw immunotherapy at it, throw pembrolizumab at it, at it if you can. But they found that the rates of recurrence and overall response rates and overall outcomes were the same in patients who got radiotherapy plus Pembro versus radiotherapy alone. And the best outcomes were actually seen inside the radiotherapy field. Outside the radiotherapy field, their 
the Pemberleyism app really wasn't adding very much. So local management of local relapse, radiotherapy is really your go-to. But Josh, up to this... Sorry, did you have something to say? I'm just saying how great your hair looks today. No, please go on. <laughs> I was going to move on to systemic therapy. Yeah, that's right. I just wanted to compliment your hair. You're, you're lying. You're lying. No, but Josh, we are predominantly a medical oncology podcast. It's certainly what we know most about, that being a relative term, obviously. Why don't we talk about the juicy stuff for us and for our listeners, which is systemic therapy, which the keener of our listeners will note has been conspicuously absent from this talk. It has been hiding from us, Michael, around the corner, down an alleyway, in a nice bakery somewhere, having a latte. The uh, thing is, you can tell Josh misses Melbourne with a statement like that. <laughs> right. Adenoid cystic carcinomas do not have a fast turnover rate. They are notoriously slow-growing cancers, and therefore systemic chemotherapy does not confer benefit generally. And I say generally, and so therefore chemotherapy is not part of the standard of care in the adjuvant setting, meaning after surgery. When you look through the available data, the consensus is reserve chemotherapy for palliative purposes in patients with symptomatic metastatic disease, recurrent disease, or rapidly progressing tumours not amenable to surgery. But there's always a but, Michael. This is an interesting field because you have patients who come in with high-risk disease, high-risk being they have perineural invasion, they have a large they have a large-sized tumour, or maybe they just have spread that you're worried about that you might not have clear margins. Do you use chemotherapy then? And this is when it comes to site-specific. My site that I work at, we do see a number of adenoid cystic carcinomas, and in the high-risk setting, we do use single-agent chemotherapy. Is there a huge amount of data to support this? No. When you look at objective response rates from single or multiple drug regimens, they range from 0 to 29%. Quite appalling. With a single institution, which is an outlier, reporting 7 out of 10 responses to cisplatin, whilst others found a 0% response rate. When we look at treatments and they have a 0% response rate, Michael, what are your thoughts on 0% response rates? I think it could not be worse. It literally could not be worse. Unless it makes the cancer grow. Um, that would make it a bit worse. Well, yes. <laughs> but but you, you would hope that that would not be something that is used commonly, seeing as it's kind of the opposite of what we go for. I think the issue with all this data that we're presented on chemotherapy is that we don't have enough data. So I think in the high-risk setting, you can try and think of it as a head and neck cancer using cisplatin after radiotherapy. And again, I know we use it concurrently, but talking about just any benefit is some benefit. And moving on, and I'll let Michael take over in just a second, what about targeted options? Are there any you know, beefed-up immunotherapy, TKIs, antibody drug conjugates, HER2 receptor extraordinaires and tour de forces and just super, super, superhuman targets. The answer is, unfortunately, it's been disappointing. Michael, why don't you tell our listeners, our loyal listeners, about the systemic options for metastatic that's not chemotherapy? There are none. That's it. We're done. <laughs> um, no. So as Josh said... 
any sort of systemic options have been disappointing. We've talked about chemotherapy and the results vary wildly and this sort of is why a study or a population of patients being so small is a huge source of error because individual results will vary wildly and you need large numbers which unfortunately are not available in this particular instance to gain some sort of consensus. Clinical trials involving agents that target CKIT, such as imatinib, which partially uh, targets the CKIT receptor, uh, have been disappointing. Drugs targeting the EGFR and HER2 receptor families did not show any clinical benefit, and there was a time, Josh, where uh, Elotinib and Jafitinib were used in patients who didn't even have a EGFR mutation in their cancer of choice. I think it was an upper GI trial way back when, when they threw erlotinib at uh, uh, stomach cancers or something, at gastric cancers, and they surprisingly did not demonstrate any benefit, as is the case here. However, the one slight ray of sunshine, the slight peek through the clouds is excitinib. And there was a phase two trial actually published just this year that evaluated the efficacy of axitinib, which is a pan-VEGF receptor inhibitor, as well as the pdl one inhibitor avelumab in patients with recurrent or metastatic adenoid cystic carcinoma. Patients had to have progression within six months of enrollment, and the primary endpoint was the overall response rate with the secondary endpoints being progression-free survival, overall survival, and toxicity. It enrolled 40 patients, and 28 were evaluable for efficacy, as there were six screen fails, and six evaluable for safety only. Anyone who's been involved in trials will sympathise with these sorts of things. The confirmed overall response rate was 18%, and there was only one unconfirmed... Oh, sorry. In addition, there was one unconfirmed partial response. Two other patients achieved a partial response at six months, with the overall response rate at six months landing at 14%. The median follow-up time for surviving patients was 22 months, so, I mean, partially, as Josh has said, due to the slow growth of the cancer, that sort of time is potentially not un not unexpected or unexplainable, but it is significant. 22 months is, as anyone who has looked at a calendar recently will tell you, almost a year. The median progression-free survival was 7.3 months. The six-month PFS rate was 57%, so over half of patients are making it to... I just realised my mistake. <laughs> what mistake was that, Michael? Please elaborate. <laughs> that the mistake was that 22 months is... Not almost a year, it is almost two years. Yes, that's correct. So Michael can definitely count and uh, order chemotherapy safely, but that's almost two that's, years. That's almost two years. I'll try. I'll add that one again and you can splice it in. Nope, not at all. We are keeping this in. <laughs> As anyone who has looked at a calendar recently will tell you, that is almost two years. Not one year, as some people might say, in other versions of this podcast. Um... So over half of patients were making it to six months uh, without disease progression. And the median progression-free survival was 7.3 months. Michael, it's, they're pretty terrible. I, I understand this is the most recent data and there is some benefit from this. But 
22 months, if you look at someone who has metastatic pancreatic cancer and has a Whipple's procedure, it's pretty similar timeframes. Yes, I guess. Potentially that is down to the fact that exit inhibitor velimab doesn't have too much of an effect and the cancer is just slow growing. But it could be that this is, even though it's a slower growing cancer, again, much like pancreatic cancer, it is also it is also one that is quite hard to shift. When we come to the median overall survival, it was 16.6 months. So again, fairly terrible numbers. In terms of toxicities, these were fairly typical for axitinib and avelumab, with fatigue, hypertension, and diarrhea being the most common. In summary, the study investigation the study investigator said that the potential added benefit of avelumab to axitinib in ACC requires further investigation. So you could say that we are really not we are really no closer to a definitive answer than we were before this study. However, it is something to consider, and I guess that's the other thing that we haven't mentioned with the treatment of ACCs, is because of the lack of standard options, these are the sort of people who, if they're fit and well enough, you will want to get on some sort of clinical trial. It will be very difficult to get them on a trial specific for adenoid cystic adenocarcinomas, adenoid cystic carcinomas, but there are always basket studies that will enroll anyone and everyone who is refractory to standard therapies or for whom there are no standard therapies. And these are the sorts of patients who you want to get on to see if they have a benefit from whatever novel therapy is coming through. That's exactly right, Michael. And if you're looking for things like NKR fusions, such as larotrectinib and other such weird and wonderful mutations, you might actually find a target for your patients. Well, we hope you enjoyed our oncology cancer, rare cancer snapshot featuring Jafar over here who likes to go sometimes as Michael and I am definitely Iago because I am so charming. And you're always uh, perched on my shoulder. Always perched on your shoulder. If you have a look, they have done multiple studies from multiple targets and I think the difficulty is the rarity of this cancer and a lot of the time in the metastatic setting, you could potentially hold off because if you hold off and it's very slow growing, you can delay giving treatment. Absolutely agree. Um, but of course, a very challenging cancer for anyone who is forced to confront it and manage it. That's it. On that cheerful note, as we fly off into the sunset on our magic carpet, Jafar and Iago will return next week for another fun-filled adventure. See you then. See ya. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.